Hey, it's Brian, back with another Burr Month's bonus episode for those of us getting an early start on the Christmas season. We're about a week into the Burr Months now, and I hope you've been making every day count. Maybe having a pumpkin spice something or other here and there. I always love to hear from you, so if you've been up to anything interesting or just want to say hi, you can drop me a line at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Today we're picking up where we left off with our story, and we're about a quarter of the way through now. I'll bring you a couple of chapters every few days until the story's finished. But first let me remind you that it is never too early to send a Christmas memory to share in an episode this season. All you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Also, I'd love to send you an early Christmas card with a Christmas Past sticker in it. Just leave a review for this show on Apple Podcasts and then get in touch with me with your mailing address. Okay, back to the story. Now make sure you listen from the beginning as we follow the Campfire Girls in the Allegheny Mountains or A Christmas Success Against Odds. It's a 1918 YA novel, and the idea of a Christmas against the odds is a fitting theme for 2020 amidst the pandemic. And 1918 also happens to be the year of the last pandemic. Well, anyway, last time we left the girls, they had just arrived at Marion's family home after a train ride, and her father had just arrived home with a thrilling story to recount. Chapter 6. The Punster Makes a Find When Marion Stanlock selected the term High Peak as her campfire name, her deliberations carried her back from the Hiawatha Institute to the scene of most of the years of her child life in Holly Hill. Confronted with the task of choosing a name, she first consulted her ideals to determine what associations she wished to have in mind when, in after years, she recalled the motive and circumstances of her selection. Home surroundings had always had much of beauty for Marion. From the beginning of his business career, Mr. Stanlock had made a large income and was able to supply his family with many of the expensive luxuries as well as all the so-called necessities of life. But for Marion, the artificial luxuries had little special attraction. She accepted them as a matter of course, but that is about all the claim they had upon her. She enjoyed the use of her father's automobiles, but she wondered sometimes at the scheme of things which entitled her to an electric runabout or a limousine and a chauffeur, while thousands of other quite as deserving girls were not nearly as well favored. The ability and disposition to look at things occasionally from this point of view contributed much to the generosity of Marion's nature. She was a favorite among rich and poor alike except among those rich who could understand why the wealthy ought to be specially favored, and those poor too narrow and circumscribed to credit any wealthy person with genuine generosity. Being of this artless and artificial trend of mind, Marion must naturally turn to either nature or human merit for the selection of her campfire name. She was not sufficiently mature to pick a poetic idea from the achievements of men, and so it fell to nature to supply a quaint notion as a foundation of her nom de fire. Seated in her room at Hiawatha Institute one evening, Marion cast about her mental horizon for some scene or association in her life that would suggest the desired name. The first that came to mind was the picture of a towering mountain, conspicuous not so much for its actual loftiness as for its deceptive appearance of great height. 
In all her experiences at home, it had never occurred to Marion to think of this individual portion of prehistoric geological upheaval as a mass of earth and stones. She thought of it only as the most beautiful expression of nature she had ever seen, graceful of form, rich in the season's decorations. This mountain was probably about as slender as it is possible for a mountain to be. Compared or contrasted with a nearby and characteristic mountain of the range, it was as a lady's finger to a telescoped giant's thumb. High Peak, as the tapering sugarloaf of Earth was called, was located west of Holly Hill close to the town. In fact, the portion of the city inhabited by the main colony of miners' families was built on the sloping ground that formed a foothill of the mountain. And so, when Marion named herself as a campfire girl after this mountain, she had in mind an ideal expressed in the first injunction of the law of campfire, which is, seek beauty. High Peak was her ideal of beauty and grandeur. It stood also with her for lofty aspiration. Thus, she pictured the physical representation of the name she chose as a member of the great army of girls who seek romance, beauty, and adventure in everyday life. On the day when the Flamingo campfire arrived in Holly Hill, another train pulled in at the principal station several hours earlier. It came from the same direction and might indeed have borne the 13 girls and their guardian if they had seen fit to get up early enough to catch a 3 o'clock train. But the 13 girls would have been much interested if they could have beheld the 8 boy passengers as they got off in a group and looked around to see if there was anyone at the depot who knew any of them. Relieved at the apparent absence of anybody who might recognize the one of their numbers whose home was in Holly Hill, or another who had been a frequent visitor there, the eight boys hastened to a corner half a square away from the depot and boarded a streetcar that was waiting for the time to start from this terminal point. The car started almost immediately after they had seated themselves, moving in a southwesterly direction through the business section of the town and then directly west toward High Peak passing along the northern border of the mining colony and then making a curve to the north through a more prosperous residence district. The eight boys all wore scout uniforms. They were the full membership of the One Spring Lake Patrol, the leader of which was Ernest Hunter, whose home was in Holly Hill and who had invited all of the scouts of his patrol to be his guests during the holidays. This invitation followed the receipt of information that Marion Stanlock had invited the members of her campfire to spend the Christmas holidays with her. Ernest Hunter was well prepared to entertain his guests in real scout fashion. His parents' home was not large enough to afford sleeping quarters and the ordinary conveniences for seven visitors in addition to the regular personnel of the family, but the boy had taken care of this deficiency long before he had ever dreamed that it might occur. The Hunter home included a large tract of land running clear up to the foot of the mountain, which at this point was rocky and covered with a plentiful growth of white pine, hemlock, and black spruce. Hidden behind an irregular heap of boulders and a small timber foreground was a cave, formed by nature and nature's anarchistic elements that could not fail to delight the most fastidious wonder-seeker. The entrance was about the size of an ordinary doorway, flanked by twin boulders like columns for an arched shelter. Within was a large room with fairly smooth walls and ceiling of Silurian rock and sandstone. The cave as it now appeared would hardly have been recognized by its aboriginal frequenters. It had been converted into a place of civil abode or resort, retaining only enough of its pristine wilderness for romantic effect. 
Ernie Hunter had done his work well. He had provided for heat for the cave by running a galvanized stovepipe up through a crevice in the rocks and filling with stones and cement all the surrounding vents to guard against the draining in of water from the mountainside. He also collected and stored at home a supply of old mattresses, blankets, kitchen utensils, a laundry stove, and other domestic conveniences usable in a place of this kind. A week before vacation, he wrote thus to his 12-year-old brother, Paul. I'm going to bring seven boys home with me. We are going to spend the vacation in the mountains with the cave as headquarters. Will you have the stove hauled there and set up and keep a fire in it a good deal of time and dry the place out thoroughly? We will come to Holly Hill on an early train so as to have plenty of time to haul the mattresses and other outfittings to the cave and get it ready for habitation. We will all have guns and we will have some great times shooting game. Of course, you will be in on all of this. Paul did as requested. When the patrol arrived at the hunter home, he reported to his brother that the latter's instructions had been carried out and all was in readiness for the removal of the outing outfit from the storeroom over the garage to the cave. Everything but the mattresses were piled into Mr. Hunter's seven-passenger touring car, the eight boys piled in on top, and the first run to their holiday headquarters was made. As the machine drove toward the mouth of the cave, the boys were startled at seeing two rough-looking men emerge from the entrance and slink away to the south, half hidden by the unevenness of the ground and the thick shrubbery. Their hurried movements and evident desire to avoid meeting the boys marked them as suspicious characters. Fearing that they might have committed some malicious act to render the place uninhabitable, Ernie hastened toward the cave, followed by the other boys to make an inspection. Before entering, however, Ernie, who was the patrol leader, asked four of the boys to return and watch the automobile. Division of the patrol with this in view was quickly arranged, and Ernie, Clifford Long, Harry, Gilbert, and Jerry McCracken proceeded into the cave. The entrance of the cave was protected against the cold by a heavy blanket hung over a pole anchored at either end in the rocky side at the top. Pushing aside this wilderness portiere, the four investigators stepped in, lighting their way with two or three electric flashlights. They were relieved to discover that no damage had been done to the cave or to the stove set up within. After satisfying themselves on this score, they proceeded to replenish the fire by putting in several cuts of spruce, a good supply of which had been provided by Ernie's brother. The cave was still warm and had been well dried out by the steady fire kept up by Paul for two or three days. The entire patrol now reassembled and mapped out a plan for completing their day's work. It was decided that Ernie should return in the automobile to his home a mile and a half away and bring the mattresses and a supply of food that was being prepared for them at the house, while the others took upon themselves the task of cutting a supply of brushwood to lay on the floor of the cave as a kind of spring support for their mattresses. Accordingly, Ernie got into the machine and drove away while the other boys got busy with the task assigned to them. The patrol leader returned in less than an hour, accompanied by Paul and a farmhand employed by Mr. Hunter. They brought with them not only four mattresses, but the shotguns and rifled, shipped by the boys from the academy from their midwinter hunting. Ernie announced that their trunks and valises also had arrived and that George, the farmhand, would return for them in the automobile. The work progressed rapidly, and by the time the trunks and valises arrived, the mattresses were all in position, the food and cooking utensils were stored away in the narrowest compass of space that could be arranged for them, and a large pile of resinous wood had been gathered. 
It was now four o'clock, and the boys felt that they were entitled to a rest. A large boulder with a flat end two and a half feet in diameter was rolled into the cave and propped into position with slabs of stone for a table. On this was placed a large kerosene lamp which, when burning, lighted up the cave very well. A supply of camp chairs had been brought in with the first load, so everyone had a seat. I call this something swell from the point of view of a smart rustic who hasn't absorbed any city nonsense," observed Miles Berryman, seating himself comfortably in a chair and gazing about with great satisfaction. I think, Ernie, that we must all agree that you are a very wide-awake opportunist. Is that the kind of musician who plays an opportune at every opportunity? inquired John St. John in a tone of gravity as deep as the cavern in which they were housed. Now see here, Johnny Two Times, exclaimed Miles portentously. You know what we came near doing to you six months ago for springing that kind of stuff. We came near ducking him in a lake, reminded Earl Hamilton. Yes, continued Miles, with an attitude of a stage threat, and if we can't find a lake around here, we can find a deep snowdrift to throw him into. I wonder if he catches the drift of that argument, said Clifford Long with a wink at Miles. He not only catches it, but he understands, and hence he does snow drift, as in does no drift, of what the menacing Miles means, declared John, who had long answered to the nickname of Johnny two times because of the combination of baptismal and family names by which he was legally known. A roar of pun-protesting groans filled the cavern, and as several of the boys arose in attitudes of vengeance, the punster made a dive for the exit and disappeared beyond the blanket portiere. None of the protesters followed. They did not feel like engaging in any vigorous sport following the strenuous exercises they had had. Five minutes later, Johnny Two Times returned. One glance at his face was sufficient guarantee that he had lost all his punning facetiousness. He held in his hand a bit of paper which he laid on the stone table by the lamp. Read that, boys, he exclaimed excitedly. I found it outside. Those men must have dropped it. They're after Mr. Stanlock. They're going to hold him up. The ten other boys needed no second bidding. They crowded around so eagerly that nobody could read. Here, I'll read it aloud, said Clifford, picking up the paper and holding it close to the lamp. Here is what he read. I will bring old Stanlock along the foothill pike. We'll slow up in the sand stretch. Be there, ready to grab him. Jake. Chapter 7. To the Rescue. Boys, we've got to do something, declared patrol leader Ernie Hunter, breaking the gaping silence that followed the reading of the note. What shall we do? asked Harry Gilbert, who was a good soldier, but not a leader. We must go to Mr. Stanlock's rescue, Ernie replied. There is no telling what those rascals are plotting. They may kill him if we don't get there in time to prevent it. It's a long hike, and we may not be able to get there in time, Paul Hunter warned. That means we've got to move mighty fast, Ernie said. Boys, get your guns and a supply of shells. I hope we won't have to use them, but we'd better be prepared. We're going to be late getting back, so you may as well grab some bread and dried beef and anything else that you can find in a jiffy to eat on the way. We've got to start in three minutes. Now, everybody hustle. Paul, you and Jerry had better run home and stay there till morning, Ernie added, turning to his younger brother. Jerry was scarcely any larger than Paul, although the latter was a year younger. Ernie felt a slightly nervous responsibility for the safety of the twin babies of the bunch, as someone had already referred to them in the course of the day. 
Jerry, who like Paul was an extremely likable fellow, resented being called a baby of the patrol, a term sometimes applied to him when the scouts were dealing in jocular personalities. Not much are we going home, declared Paul energetically. Are we, Jerry? I'm going along and carry my target rifle with the rest. What do you say, Jerry? I'm with you, the latter announced with spirit. They can't leave us behind. But you can't make the trip fast enough, Ernie insisted. We'll have to run part of the way, and the ground is rough, and the snow and ice on the road make it hard traveling. We've got over two miles of that kind of hiking to do, and less than an hour to do it. We can make it just as well as anyone else in this bunch, declared Paul stoutly. Well, come along then, but you're going to have to obey orders, said Ernie, speaking as one with military authority. We're operating under martial law tonight, and if you insist on coming along, you must expect to be treated like a soldier. Everybody bring your gun and flashlight. It's cloudy now and will be dark before long. In scarcely more time than it takes to tell it, the boys had possessed themselves of their guns, flashlights, overcoats, hats, and a bite to eat on the run, and were dashing out along the path leading down to the road that skirted the foothill to the southward. Presently, however, they slowed down to a dog trot at the suggestion of Clifford Long, who warned his fellow scouts against tuckering themselves out. They continued along in this manner half a mile, and then, by common consent, reduced their pace to a walking long stride. As they proceeded thus, Ernie said to Clifford Long and one or two others nearest him, I'm afraid we've made a mistake in not doing one thing that had just occurred to me. What I ought to have done was to hurry home, got the automobile, and made a race for the police station while you boys made this trip. And that way, we could have had a double chance of catching those bandits. If everything had gone smoothly, I might have beaten you boys to the scene of the holdup with an automobile full of police. I could have left word, too, for someone to call Mr. Stanlock's office and warn him if by any cause he had been delayed. I don't think much of that suggestion, replied Clifford, for if they haven't got him started by this time, they're not likely to get him going their way tonight. But the other'd have been a good one. It's too bad you didn't think of it sooner. Too late now, said Ernie. We've got to make the best of it. Who do you suppose those two men are that we saw coming out of the cave? Miles Berryman inquired. The chances are 99 out of 100 that this affair is connected directly to the strike, Clifford replied with confident assurance. The highwaymen who plotted this scheme doubtless belong to the rougher elements of the strikers. They are really dangerous men, and the community would be much safer if they were lodged in prison. How do you suppose they got your uncle to come away out here at the time when he usually starts home for dinner? That is, if he really came this way, asked Hal Edelson. That's the very thing that's bothering me most, Clifford replied with a puzzled air. Uncle is usually pretty shrewd, and I am pretty certain that people who try to put over anything on him generally find that they have a hard job on their hands. I'd take it from the note Jerry found that this is a decoy game they're trying to work, Ernie remarked. It'd have to be a sharp one to get my uncle, declared Clifford. He's a very clever businessman. The smartest men get caught once in a while, was Ernie's sage remark. That must have been a chauffeur who wrote the note, observed Johnny St. John. It read as if a chauffeur was the brains of this plot. If we get there on time, we won't have much to chauffeur it. Oh, Johnny twice, groaned Earl Hamilton. Don't spoil your good deed of finding that note by springing any more of that stuff. You're taking an unfair advantage of us, for we can't stop now to duck you in a snowdrift. 
The road was not broken all the way for good walking, so that the boys were forced to put forth their best efforts in order to reach the place of the plotted ambush on time. Their pace therefore varied from a rapid walk to a run according as their wind and leg muscles supplied the needed endurance. Paul and Jerry found it pretty hard to keep up with the other boys during the last three quarters of a mile, especially when they struck a poorly broken snowdrift or a stretch of ground covered with rocks or rough ice. They were quite elated, however, at their attempt to keep their feet in all these rough places after seeing two of the larger boys slip and fall. It was almost dark by the time they reached the vicinity of the sand stretch referred to in the note found by Johnny two times. This stretch was a sand bed of several acres in extent between which and High Peak was a large stone quarry. The road ran between the sand stretch, which of course was now frozen and covered with snow, and the quarry. The approach to this was sheltered, fortunately, for the concealment of the boy rescuers by a growth of timber extending down the mountain slope to the road. Ernie called a halt about 200 yards from the point in the road which appeared the most favorable place for an ambush. Let's leave the road and make our way through the trees, he suggested. There comes the automobile, exclaimed Paul excitedly, pointing down the highway to the southwest. Yes, a machine was approaching, about two miles away. The long stream of lights from the electric lamps could be seen almost hitting the sky as the auto began to climb a steep hill. Evidently, it had just turned into this highway from another thoroughfare leading direct from the city. Come on, we must hurry, said Ernie, dashing into the timber. Be careful, don't fall or run any branches in your eyes. They made fairly good progress considering the difficulties before them and the darkness in the woods. However, they kept close to the edge where the tree growth was not very heavy and where the snow reflected sufficient light to guide their feet. Ernie ordered that none of the flashlights be used, and perhaps it was fortunate for the success of the expedition that this order was issued and obeyed. The efforts of the boys were well-timed. Everything went like clockwork, or so it afterwards seemed. Two shadowy forms were discerned standing in the thicker darkness under the trees as the automobile arrived near the southern edge of the quarry. The boys were within easy attacking distance from the place where the two men stood. Ernie whispered the word HALT loud enough for his companions to hear him. They gathered around their leader, who hurriedly spoke thus. Now, everybody listen to me for orders. When I give the word FIRE, you, Paul, John, Harry, and Jerry, fire your guns into the air. Be careful and shoot up toward the tops of the trees so as not to hit anyone. Then I'll give the order to CHARGE, and everybody let out an Indian war whoop or something of the sort. We won't have to do any more shooting. Now, come on, we'll get closer. Those fellows are starting now. Even as he spoke, the two villainous individuals with masks on their faces dashed out from the timber and planted themselves in front of the automobile with pistols leveled at the driver. The latter, according to the plan outlined in his note discovered by Johnny two times, slowed down the machine before the highwaymen appeared. At the command to halt, he came to a sudden stop and threw up his hands. Ready? Fire! commanded Ernie in a loud voice. Two magazine shotguns and two target rifles exploded in quick succession. Without giving the two hold-up men time to determine whether or not they had been hit, the patrol leader issued his second order thus. Now, boys, after them! Charge! No quarter for the rascals! Then followed a scene that, for rapidity of action, is not often surpassed by motion picture speed artists.
Well, it's another action-packed cliffhanger ending for this installment. You know, that idea of young Boy Scouts carrying guns actually used to be a real thing, and I've covered it here on Christmas Pass before. Have you checked out the miniseries My Dear Santa, A True Crime Christmas Caper? It came out about November of last year, so dig into the back catalog if you haven't discovered it yet. It's a forgotten piece of Christmas history, but it's a doozy of a story that I wish more people knew about. Well, until we meet again next time, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earl. Thanks so much for listening and as always for being part of the Christmas Past family. I wish we could grow that family, so why not help more people discover this show? It's as easy as mentioning it to a friend or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you do leave that review, like I said earlier, I'll be happy to send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card is my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details. You can always get in touch at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do consider joining the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't yet, because we're celebrating the Burr months and beyond. Until we meet again, enjoy the Burr months, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>